Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. While it's been a busy week in the field for the Concord Coalition, our experts have served on uh, panel discussions on the federal budget and the economy at the University of West Georgia, and Fresno State University in California. And I went to Austin, Texas to participate in a panel discussion at the University of Texas's LBJ School of Public Affairs. We looked at the long-term economic challenges for the United States. I was joined by economist and LBJ uh, School Public Policy Professor James K. Galbraith, and also with uh, Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. The panel was moderated by Don Kettle, retired LBJ school professor and former dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. So on this edition of Facing the Future, we'll hear excerpts from uh, that LBJ school panel discussion. Each of us on the panel were asked to give some opening statements. And it won't surprise you to know that in mine, I spoke about uh, how the national debt is growing so large. I also addressed uh, some major challenges that must be dealt with if we're going to see long-term economic growth. We need to find a way to constrain healthcare costs as America gets older. And we also need to revamp our immigration system so we can grow the size of the working age population. And finally, we, we need to take more seriously the challenge of climate change because the, the, the longer we ignore it and the warmer the planet gets, the more damage it will do to our economy and the federal budget. After I spoke, uh, I turned the microphone over to Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute, who uh, I guess sounded a more optimistic note about America's long-term prospects. This is America's secret sauce. This is what we do best. Uh, entrepreneurial innovation uh, is how we invent the modern parts of the economy and how we get comparative advantages in global competition it's how if we if we it's how we will stay ahead of the Chinese which I'm increasingly confident we will do with this uh, return to the totalitarianism that we're seeing in Beijing now yes we do have demographic uh, challenges I'm with you in thinking that immigration is going to be part of the answer economically speaking we need to focus on public investment climate investment. Now, that's something Democrats don't talk about. We always want to spend lots of money. We want to do industrial policy. We want to do infrastructure. And we've just done a lot of that with Joe Biden, by the way. Uh, a lot of smart public investment. Uh, but it's, we don't talk as much about private investment. I do want to talk about that because that's actually a bigger driver of innovation. And so we need to attend to that, as particularly on my side of the uh, political aisle. And then secondly, I want to talk about the other great challenge uh, which we see, and that is to spread the prosperity, to spread the innovation and growth more evenly across the landscape, and to create a much more robust system of preparing people who don't have college degrees to get high-paying, high-skilled jobs in this economy that's going to continue to be skill-biased 
And so that's not going to end. And we're not going to go back and get the older manufacturing to come back, which is not happening. We can get digital manufacturing, but but everybody's going to have to have higher level skills. We need a system that produces that across the labor force. So how are we going to speed up uh, innovation? Well, let's look at where it's already happening. You know, looking at the last century, America's big industrial giants were also the innovation leaders in the global economy. Companies like GM, GE, Eastman Kodak, IBM, remember them? You know, they used to <laughs> dominate the, the commanding heights of the American economy. They created most of the jobs, but they also were the innovation leaders, created new products that were emulated all over the world. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, manufacturing and employment peaked in 1979, and since then it's been a drag on U.S. jobs. Uh, now that, you know, the innovation leadership has moved over to what we call the tech e-commerce sectors, the internet-based economy, it's e-commerce, it's software, it's everything that all those big tech companies that everybody loves to hate does. Uh, but um, you know, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, these are the equivalents to those big industrial giants of the past. Uh, they're also our top job creators. And uh, I think that fact has been lost in Washington. There are all these populists on both ends of the spectrum want to break them up and severely regulate them. But uh, we looked closely at the BLS uh, statistics here, and the companies in this tech e-commerce space have generated more than uh, 1.2 million net new jobs between 16, 2016 and 2020, including the pandemic. They continued their job growth during the pandemic. And that's kind of common sense if you were there and went through it. You know, what were you all doing on Amazon, you know, ordering everything you needed, right? Or using some other uh, online service uh, because you couldn't get to do stuff. So uh, that, that job growth has been a, a remarkable factor. Uh, that's the biggest job growth in the American economy by sector, uh, eclipsing healthcare, which is the next uh, biggest, which with about 700,000 new jobs. And the average pay in this sector is about 44% higher than, it is, than the average pay across the private sector, and 21% higher than manufacturing. So I do ask, you know, my fellow Democrats in Washington, why are we sort of obsessing with the factory economy and mobile and claiming we can bring it back? And, through a combination of Buy America policies and, uh, and industrial policies and maintaining tariffs, we're going to uh, revive the factory economy. We're not. It's going to be, we are going to have a digital manufacturing sector. Uh, and, and we think that it holds great promise for being geographically spread out, a kind of deconcentration of the old industrial model. That doesn't mean we're going to have the kind of high scale employment in those sectors uh, that we had in the manufacturing, but probably not. So I think there's good news in the economy. Again, in these innovation-driven sectors, we're generating lots of great jobs. Uh, they are high-wage jobs, I mean, across the spectrum, you know, the top, middle, and, and bottom. Uh, and, you know, down in these fulfillment centers at Amazon, and, and the basic wage is 15 bucks an hour. So minimum wage we tried to legislate a couple of years back and couldn't get through Congress. Uh, and that's just the entry level wage. So uh, if you're down in, say, rural Alabama, where we had a big union unionization drive recently, that's competitive with the with the uh, the manufacturing economy uh, offered you. And so uh, it's beginning. You know, it's beginning to be the case we're seeing uh, new opportunities for uh, production for, for jobs uh, spread across the landscape in, some, in, in this sector. This is also something that's demographically spread. This phenomenon black workers are bigger share of the tech e-commerce sector than they are in manufacturing. 
we still have problems with women. They're laggards in the, this sector. We got to work on that. And we have problems with Latinos, Hispanic uh, workers tend to be still more concentrated in the old in the old industrial sector. But um, one last point on this, and that is, you know, how, how did all this happen? What happened through uh, it happened through private investment. Uh, you know, it didn't happen, frankly, to industrial policies coming out of Washington. Uh, they can be helpful or hurtful, but they, they didn't drive it. So every year, PPI puts out a, a study called the Investment Heroes Report. And we just had this idea about 10 years ago to say, okay, who's really investing in America? Um, which corporations are, are, are putting the most money, the big, laying the biggest bets on America's future? Uh, and we actually thought that you know our party has fallen into a bad habit of bashing the private sector now. Uh, and, and, and when you listen to a Bernie Sanders or, or AOC, what you hear is uh, is uh, you know basically uh, the private sector cast in the role of the villain or the enemy, which is nonsense. But the point is, uh, these companies nobody says good job to the companies that actually do what you want them to do: invest big time in the American economy. Uh, pay their workers above average uh, wages, and so again, we looked at these nine of the eleven of the of the leaders on our in our investment hero list for this last year. Uh, we're in this tech broadband sector. You know, they've been expanding capacity, and that's that's created another advantage. When you expand capacity, that means you don't have to raise prices as much. It means that you're ready for the surge in demand that we've experienced. And so they're also. This is also the low uh, inflation sector uh, of the U.S. economy. Prices are low. Uh, broadband prices have been falling, and across this whole spectrum of industries, prices are low. Of course, some of these prices are free, right? When you're when you're getting online services like uh, search, um, and so. Um, you know, it's kind of no accident. This is kind of economics 101. I trust that, you know, when private companies invest, you know, through robust capital investment and capacity expansion, they create good, high, they create jobs, good jobs, and they, they reap productivity gains, uh, which make them more resilient against the, against the kind of surge in inflation that we're now suffering from. Uh, better able to hold the line and not raise prices. So, um, you know, uh, let's build out from the speech here that these companies have. Let's find, figure out how we can get more. Uh, you know, I think we're on the verge of a big expansion in biotech uh, that, will be, that will look maybe similar to what we've seen in the digitization of the economy from uh, all the companies that, I, that I've talked about. You know, advanced robotics takes it into the digital space. Into the manufacturing space and digitize the old physical economy, you'll begin to get the kind of productivity gains that can beat the odds and, and uh, you know, and give you a higher productivity gains, higher wages, uh, better job growth over time. Last point um, you, you've got to do the human capital side of, of this challenge, and this is something we're spending a lot of time on at PPI. The United States, at the federal level, at the state level, and probably at the local level, but certainly at the federal and state level, public policy is biased in favor of college-going youth, like my kids, like me, like everybody in this room. That is, the federal government spends over $200 billion a year to help assist uh, people who are college-going. It spends about $16 billion a year on job training, career preparation, career pathways, apprenticeship, all the things aimed at non-college workers. 
This is a huge glaring inequity in our country. And what we don't have is a robust system of upskilling and reskilling and uh, job connection, uh, career pathways is sort of the shorthand for workforce development policies, school to work transitions. We don't have a robust uh, program because we don't invest in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, because we fell into this kind of uh, paradigm of college for all, we, we, we always come back to that and we underinvest, we starve this sector. I'll just give you, we have a whole you know, panoply of ideas for rectifying this, but one is on apprenticeship. Like we have about 500,000 uh, registered apprentices in the United States. This is frankly pathetic. It's a small number. It hasn't grown much over the years. Confined mostly old industrial sectors. It's about one-tenth of uh, what the, the British have, the Australians have, uh, the Germans have. They have much bigger uh, apprenticeship sectors. Uh, so, you know, while we're, while we're doing all this big spending in Washington, we think we should devote some of that to huge increase, tenfold increase in the number of apprentices in America, but not doing it in the traditional way. That was Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. So next up on the panel was LBJ public policy professor James K. Galbraith, who spoke about reimagining the American economy. The pandemic has exposed the instability of our services-based employment structure, uh, and also the fragility of supply chains. Uh, the war, uh, and in fact, all the recent wars going back 20 years, uh, underscored the limits of military power, uh, the outlook uh, in the energy sector, which underpins just about everything else, is murky, and with it, the prospect for inflation. And all, the inflation that we're experiencing largely driven uh, by the rising cost of energy, what will happen going forward is moment extremely unclear. Climate change, as I've already been said, is in fact underway, uh, and how we respond to it, how effectively, is an open question. The core concepts that we use to think about economics, whether one starts with something as simple as supply and demand, or something as structured as our national income accounts, our metrics of, of GDP, and also the so-called trade-off between inflation and employment, rules about the budget or about monetary policy. All of these things were framed in a different era. They were framed from the late 18th century through the middle of the 20th century. They all presume a basically self-contained uh, national or, if you like, imperial uh, economy. Sorry, Emma. The, the idea is that there is an economy which either tends toward a state of balance and equilibrium, or at worst, can be has a growth that can be managed by public policy, which is a lot of what uh, we're engaged with here at the, at the LBJ School. They also presume that the system is perhaps superior to any competing alternatives in the world, or at least if there is an alternative that the two are independent of each other, that one does not really affect the other. And this was not an unreasonable assumption in the first uh, Cold War. Uh, there are models that flatter a certain self-image, which I think was fair to say was originally British. It arises in the era of Victorian self-confidence of the British Empire, but it was even more effectively projected around the world by the United States 
after the Second World War. It's an image which is small r Republican, small d Democratic, modern, industrial, and efficient. And the reality is the moment something else. And for, I would say for practically my entire professional life, uh, the conditions that enabled this self-image have been slipping away. Uh, there are many suitable words, uh, globalization, financialization, militarism, imperialism, overreach, hubris are words that come to mind. The underlying economic process was well known to Adam Smith, that is specialization and the division of labor, which is in the global sense benign enough if you're talking about trade one type of good for another, but becomes somewhat more ambiguous, difficult, uh, when you're talking about the division of major economic functions. Uh, and in the world in which we have come to live over the past 40 or 50 years, the United States has reserved financial control uh, through the dollar system, the dollar, the use of the dollar as, a, as the international reserve, military control through bases, ships, bombers, and other pieces of equipment, uh, and technological control, uh, mainly through leadership and in information technologies, communications, things that Will was just talking about. But resources and industry, uh, by and large, have gone elsewhere. And with the loss of industry, infrastructure, and the engineering and mechanical prowess of the working population has eroded uh, and taking with them uh, the long-term sustainability of advantages uh, in the military sphere and increasingly in advanced technologies. So that's the present situation I think that we're facing as a result of the developments uh, since really the late 1970s is probably a reasonable starting time. And further, uh, awkward though it is to acknowledge it, it's not actually the case that the United States, that we as Americans enjoy some unique genius of economic organization. Uh, Will was talking about the great American industrial corporation, which was a, uh, a central uh, feature of my father's work in the 1950s and 1960s. Innovation of the great industrial corporation, which was a very distinctive American thing, has migrated. Uh, and it is greatly weakened here, but it continues to exist in Japan, in the Republic of Korea, in the People's Republic of China. Uh, and I would add also, uh, it has emerged in a slightly altered form, certainly in Germany, uh, but also in a slightly altered form in the last several decades in Russia. In these countries, one observes the emergence or the reemergence of industrial power built on a very large resource base uh, and sustaining the engineering mindset and the technical disciplines uh, that don't characterize the elites in the United States. And again, Will made this point, but so college-educated elites, lawyers, business managers, uh, medical professionals, of course, are a different kind of character of thing. They are technical, but they're very specialized in a particular area. Uh, now, this university is an exception, I think, amongst amongst many as having a very strong engineering and physics and science, scientific component, but this is not characteristic of the American uh, system as we now see it. Uh, and it's not characteristic of the general population, almost all of whom in the last 30 or 40 years are employed 
uh, in, in the services sector. And unfortunately for the United States, our own position in economic, political, and moral terms as an exemplar for the world is far weaker now than it was in the first Cold War. In the first Cold War, we really did hold a position to which much of the rest of the world saw as the uh, as, as, as the model uh, that was expressed by American national leaders in a way which was effective outside the world, outside the country, and I don't think that's the case now. So we are, of course, reacting to this, and we have to ask, are we reacting to it in an effective way? I, I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I'll just cite one example, which is the most recent salvo from the Biden administration, uh, which was aimed at the semiconductor sector uh, in China. Uh, by most accounts that I've read, they did do some damage, maybe some serious damage by withholding the most advanced semiconductor technologies uh, from China. Uh, this, this is something the U.S. and certain partners, the Netherlands and others, do control. But consider the, the Biden White House uh, just last year did a very good report on uh, supply chain issues. And in analyzing that sector, it pointed out that China is one half of the world market for semiconductors. And if that market goes away, what you're doing is cutting U.S. companies, the most advanced ones, from the funds that they require for research and investment. This was the judgment of the administration in its own internal research uh, as of uh, early last, the summer before last. Now, those funds can be replenished to some extent by public subsidies. And that's, in fact, I think what the, what the administration's bill seeks to do. But then I have to ask, how is this uh, really different from a uh, state-directed technology sector, from a command economy? And by what mechanism will we uh, actually ensure the requisite degree of performance and avoid the stagnation into which command economies are prone to fall? I guess my own sense is, Good luck with that. Um, and if we do not quite succeed, then we are not going to be able to deal with the cost pressures that come from this sector. And as I said before, the cost pressures that come from the energy sector will depend in part on geology and part on control of production. These are matters that we don't have a clear sense of right now, but we'll see. That's where I think to come to the inflation question, uh, we're going to find uh, that we're facing the most difficulties. That was University of Texas LBJ School Public Policy Professor James K. Galbraith speaking on a panel this week that I was on also at the LBJ School of Public Affairs addressing the long-term challenges for the U.S. economy. Galbraith concluded that we should get used to the reality that global, military, financial, and technological power will continue to be more widely dispersed. Uh, than it was in the period immediately following World War II. You're listening to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby. We'll have more from the panel discussion at the LBJ School in Austin, Texas. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Let's get back to the panel discussion I participated in this week at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. We on the panel were asked a question by moderator Don Kettle about the importance of constraining health care costs. 
Uh, Don pointed out that he had just had a hip replacement that cost taxpayers about $100,000 since it was covered by Medicare. Here was my answer, followed by my fellow panelist, economist James K. Galbraith, and Will Marshall, president of the Progressive Policy Institute. Encouraging more efficient healthcare system, whereas right now it's pretty much, you know, the fee-for-service system in, in Medicare and subsidizing private health insurance by, uh, you know, that's uh, making it tax deductible for businesses encourages more spending uh, rather than what you're spending it on, you know, quanti quantity over quality and somehow transforming the medical system so that Don Kettle still gets his hip replacement, but uh, it doesn't cost so much. It's going to require some difficult choices because, yeah, other countries do a much better job of controlling healthcare costs than we do. Uh, we're, we're a notoriously uh, expensive healthcare system, and, um, and it doesn't generate uh, any better results. And so what we need, to, but the one thing that they do in other countries is that they do impose some limits that we don't hear. There are budgetary limits and things like that. So the question as we try to transform to a more efficient healthcare system is, can we accept limits? Paul Tongas used to joke that this is the only country in the world that considers death to be an option. So, you know, as we try to, uh, as we try to have a more efficient healthcare system, I think that that's, that's really the key. Um, and I, I, I like to have the government uh, take on that because what, what the government does through Medicare, Medicaid, the rules that the government sets has a profound effect on the rest of the healthcare system. Uh, so it can really be a, a leader there. Jamie. When the question of healthcare comes up, I always think about a, a remark that was made to me many years ago by uh, the very distinguished economist Paul Sanderson, uh, who said that at the time, I think the number was 15%. He said healthcare is 15% of GDP, and it's the best 15% of American GDP. And I think there's a, a lot to be said for that. But the, the, the problem, which uh, has already been mentioned here, to state it clearly, is insurance. The problem is insurance, and the problem is that we have this uh, jerry-built system of private insurance intended to support it a network of private insurance companies, their executives, their stockholders, uh, as profit centers, uh, as an extension of the, of, the, of the financial sector, the fire sector. This is something which other countries dispense with and manage to deliver pretty good quality health care without the paperwork and without the, uh, um, you know, without the, the fuss and the bother and without the rejections and all the other things, although they do have other problems. Uh, uh, but I, I remember getting sick and, and passing through Heathrow and going, being shipped out to a British hospital. And in 19, 20, 90 minutes, I was, I was checked out, discharged, handed a slip of paper with my name on it. And that was it. No bill, no further, no further record of, uh, whereas you know what would happen if you, if you stop at an emergency room here. Uh, the, 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 the bills keep coming in <laughs> bits and pieces for weeks. Uh, so this is the problem that we have, and it's a political problem. It's a problem that could be solved uh, by extending Medicare to the whole population. But if you didn't want to do that, the simplest thing 
in my view, is to take the 65 and change the 6 to a 5, so it's Medicare at 55. And then you would take a lot of people, all of us are past that point, but some of you are not, uh, who are in that decade when health begins to become costly, uh, and they would come under the Medicare system, and that would make it much cheaper for employers uh, to uh, to finance insurance for, for, for younger people. That's a healthy problem. So the ways of doing this, but we just haven't really, well, why don't we Why don't we do it? Because the political system is blocked up um, on this question. That's very straightforward. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, well, we have a jaundiced view about the federal capacity to do much of anything these days. Uh, it's so captive of, of a myriad of uh, conflicting and uh, you know overlapping interests. Uh, everything is mired in the sludge of too many laws and too many regulations. So this is not where I look for public sector creativity. But for your problem, I mean, innovation is going to play a role. Well, you know, uh, gene splicing is going to help us find cheaper ways to deal with your uh, with your your hip problem down the road. But the simple way to deal with the healthcare cost problem, with respect, is not to uh, Medicare for all and suddenly turn it all over to Washington. Is the cap spending? We just did that with prescription drugs, right? And this, and what Biden has done, you put a cap on spending. This is what other countries do. Other countries have hybrid public and private uh, provision of, of their healthcare systems, but they cap, they cap costs. So let's cap costs. But that's what we propose. Uh, and you know, there's ways to do it. Uh, you know, basically benchmarking it off Medicare uh, reimbursement rates and do it in a declining way that. Uh, that that uh, can create incentives to move the whole system away from fee for service, which is kind of a structural driver in inefficiency. We next heard a question from the audience at the University of Texas focused on immigration and the future productivity of American workers. Uh, is Vakil, I'm actually one of the Texas fiscal lookouts for the Concord Coalition. Uh, I, I want the panel to comment on uh, a contrarian position. Uh, the you know, you read a lot. Of, this is this has to do with immigration and you know the falling birth rates, and you read a lot about you know articles bemoaning the fact that Western Europe and Japan and China and even the U.S. has falling birth rates, and therefore it's going to tank their economies in the future. The contrarian view is that that actually that vacuum is being replaced and will be replaced by technology, and therefore we need a different measure of productivity in terms of contributions to the GDP, then simply the, you know, the contributions of human capital and the contributions of one generation to you know, the, uh, the previous generation's retirement, that the productivity is actually coming more as a function of the innovation and the technology uh, that you know, some of you have talked about. Will mentioned that, you know, the, the robotics and things of that sort. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I, my own view is that it would have to be just an astounding uh, increase in, in productivity to make up for the decline in, in population. Uh, and I, I think it would be probably unprecedented. I, I don't know what the, um, the, the, the numbers would be you know, going back into the Industrial Revolution or, or something like that. But, but, uh, but, but I mean, we're going to need that because even if we do the sort of big immigration that uh, I'd like to do, there are political limits and practical limits. So we're going to have to try to, we're going to have to hope that the kind of uh, innovations that you're talking about do 
result in, in much greater productivity because it's going to need to be much higher than it's been in the past, even if we do the immigration stuff to make up for a uh, slowing workforce. Maybe, Jimmy. If you want to spur productivity, uh, the way to do that uh, is to raise wages. The way to do that is to, if you had, I mean, New York and California already have now a $15 minimum wage. You put that in effect more broadly, and employers have to choose. Do they go the route, or do they stay with the route of, of, of maintaining a, a large, low-wage population, or do they innovate and improve their productivity? This is how Scandinavia got rich in the 20th century, by having a very egalitarian wage structure, which they maintained with an open economy. They didn't have protections. But what that meant was that you had to move up the productivity scale in order to maintain the competitiveness of the country. And that's what they did. Well, we have a very relaxed attitude toward this. And then you really you say to the employers, well, if you're really good, you'll figure out how to, how to work in this environment and improve your productivity. If you're not so good, well, the market will open up for somebody else. Good luck. <laughs> that's how a well-regulated system actually moves up the productivity ladder. Well, I don't have much to add except two things. One is that you know, we would like to see the aperture for legal immigration wide, a lot more people coming in with organized around work. Uh, we have an idea for a universal willing worker visa, take all these alphabet soup visas and put them all together to administratively simplify this thing and, and, and try to match willing workers to Real job openings in the U.S. economy that you know has been there's been some effort uh, made by the employer to show they can't he can't source the labor locally you know, for this country. Uh, but you but the other side you're never going to get there if you don't also uh, constrict the aperture narrow the aperture for illegal. That's what we don't want to do. And so our party won't do that. The other party you know doesn't want to really have a wider legal immigration no matter what they say. Uh, and so we are stuck and we have a policy that, I mean, it doesn't matter how many workers we have, we have an incoherent policy that doesn't make any sense. There's no way to administer it, to administer it because we don't know what we're trying to achieve. Uh, on productivity gains, I would only note that, you know, we're seeing, big, we're seeing big wage gains right now across the U.S. economy. We have 3.5% unemployment. We have, excuse me, yeah, unemployment. We have, you know, snare drum tight labor markets right now. And we, we see uh, wages going up, and we actually see wages at the lower end, so the distribution going up faster than at the higher end. So low-income people's wages are rising rapidly now. Uh, so we're in a period such as we would love to have. I'm not, you know, we don't, you know, now I don't know if we're going to get prodigies of productivity growth. They're going to completely offset the you know, demographic learn. But we want to get the most we can get. Um, but of course, we have this little problem called inflation, and it's tied, you know, to frankly, to public spending, overspend. So yes, there's a connection to, uh, you know, our failure to adhere to some kind of reasonable fiscal discipline standard. I'm no austerian, but we've got to have a reasonable standard because I looked at Federal Reserve San Francisco's report out on the contribution made to inflation by overspending, uh, you know, to fight this pandemic recession. And, uh, and it's real. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
We're listening to excerpts from a panel discussion I participated in at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. We were looking at the long-term fiscal and economic challenges, and we'll hear more after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Now, more from the panel discussion I participated in at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Joining me on the panel were economics professor James K. Galbraith of the LBJ School and Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. We got a very interesting question from one of the Concord Coalition's Texas fiscal lookouts, Jeff Harper. The best definition I've read of when a nation reaches its credit limit was a nation reaches its credit limit when it becomes counterproductive to print more money. This coupled with the Cantillon effect and the trade of the uh, lower working class Folks, I hold the distinction of being a federal budget nerd and a working class guy who was in an economics class when the NAFTA vote was taken. Anyway, I look at those forces, the Cantillon effect, the impact on the working class of the Cantillon effect, and when are we going to, and I think we're seeing the early signs with inflation, which I, I say to people in my novice understanding, it typically what form that that counterproductivity takes is in the form of inflation. And it, it sounds like there's agreement amongst everybody with regard to the inflation up there um, being a challenge. And I don't believe we can outrun it with productivity or, or whatever, just uh, y'all's, y'all's thoughts on that. What would be y'all's definition of the best definition for when a nation reaches its credit limit? I mean, the answer to that is when the West of the world doesn't wish to hold your 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 uh, your debt, which is not a problem that the United States faces right now. The contrary, the problem that we have is the rest of the world is demanding more of our debt, and the dollar is rising. Okay. Europe has that problem. The UK has that problem. The euro is now below the dollar, and with no bottom in sight at the moment. Um, that's and the U.S. doesn't have that problem right now. Um, that's a, 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 it's a mixed blessing for us that we don't, because it also means that we export our inflation to Europe, uh, which is a cheap way of dealing with some of it. That's what the Fed is doing by raising interest rates, and to uh, and to the rest of the world, by the way, to Latin America. Uh, so my view is that it, I agree with you that inflation is a serious problem, but the underlying sources of it are in the energy supply in the supply chain, some degree in the housing sector. Uh, And these need to be dealt with by uh, a a serious, let's call it a whole of government effort uh, to the extent they can be dealt with. Some degree, the energy problem may be a long-term problem. I don't know what the geology is like or what the production is going to be like. Uh, And I don't know anybody who is completely confident in the industry. So this is something we're going to we may be facing for quite some time, uh, but it's not going to be solved by higher interest rates, except by crushing labor, crushing wages, uh, crushing employment, 
uh, and generally speaking, transferring income from middle class and working class Americans uh, to the back to the banking sector, which is uh, just going to aggravate every every kind of social division that, we're, that we uh, presently uh, are, are, are experiencing. So it's not the right solution. Uh, it's uh, it, it is a it's a cop out on the part of of public policy to hand inflation over to the central bank and say, Jay, that's not our problem. You deal with it. We'll just worry about the easy stuff. Um, I, I do want to take this opportunity to say the one way that is not a definition is a statutory definition, uh, which is an insane thing, and we should get rid of it. Uh, and I say that as a deficit hawk uh, because it, is, it, it doesn't do anything to manage fiscal policy. It just means that Congress is pro uh, prohibited from paying for the debt that it has owed, which effectively turns uh, Uncle Sam into a deadbeat. And so we have these crises every now and then when the debt limit comes up. And, you know, it is not an effective way of managing our debt, but it can be dangerous uh, by forcing a default. So I think that uh, one thing I would hope for the future is we come up with some better way of, uh, of dealing with that. I, I, I wanted to ask Jamie, because one of your comments got me even more depressed when I was thinking about it because, and so I want to ask you about that because you were talking about the future of the dollar. And one of the reasons that you can say, well, the United States is in a better position than say Great Britain or somebody else not to have to worry about their debt so much is because of the dominance of the dollar as the world currency. But but you mentioned that, that it could be that in some time in the future, the dollar would not be the dominant currency. Would that have, uh, is that something we should worry about in terms of the amount of uh, debt and the, the long-term debt that we're piling on? Is that some reason to try to bring that into a more sustainable future? My sense of this, and I, 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 I started, I published something on this last spring, which I'm, I'm republishing shortly, um, is that there is, what we're seeing is the creation of a zone uh, which will not be using the dollar or the euro. And that zone uh, is centered around uh, around the Russian Federation, around China, uh, uh, to a degree their trade with India, with Iran, and they're they're working on um, on, on settling energy trade, for example, um, in in local in, in national currencies. They can do that, uh, but that's not quite the same thing as creating a reserve asset that competes with the dollar. Because you don't need a reserve asset if the trade is balanced, but the, 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 uh, the accounts still liquidate over a short period of time. If you have unbalanced trade, then you need a financial reserve. Uh, and at the moment, there's no suitable alternative. Uh, the Chinese currency, the RMB, is the large, large item, but there's no substantial amount of Chinese debt in the world. And the, the capital flows are controlled in China thanks to a sensible, pragmatic development policy. Uh, you know, the, the Russian ruble is the, is, the, is the currency of one country, and I, I don't think that's going to be a reserve asset broadly held anytime soon. So um, that's, in my, my sense is that for the moment, okay, now I'll come back since we're close to the end. I'd always like to close by, by, by quoting the... Uh, 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 possibly apocryphal remark 
uh, at the end of his life of the Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who reported to him, said that almighty providence takes special care of drunks, fools, and the United States of America. <laughs> I want to add one point here, and I underscore the link again between private sector investment and inflation. We are seeing, you know, uh, for example, um, investment in the oil sector fell in the last 10 years. Uh, and, uh, and, and so now we have really high oil prices. We have a capacity shortage. I know everybody in Washington thinks it's all gouging, but actually there is a market. Actually, price is responsive to that global market. And so don't, you know, let's not forget that companies that keep investing, keep expanding capacity are more resilient against the kind of shocks we've had. Now, we couldn't, during the pandemic, find an N95 mask in America. We had to import them all from China. Now, this is not just an underinvestment story. It's an outsourcing story, too, to James' earlier points. But, and, we, and we've got to think, we have to think strategically about the sort of the the manufacturing capacity that we have in this country, we keep in this country, that we need for resilience. But uh, it, it, it's not all macroeconomic policy. It's also a, a function of high investment. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That was Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute. He appeared on a panel discussion with me and University of Texas economist, James K. Galbraith, looking at the long-term fiscal and economic outlook for the United States. We've been listening to excerpts from that discussion on Facing the Future this week. And if you want to see video for the whole discussion, visit ConcordCoalition.org. That's all the time we have for this week. Join us again next week for another episode of Facing the Future. 